The following program is brought to you by the AHIMA 22 Global Conference. If you are listening, you and your team belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio, for networking connections that will last a lifetime. Find out more about AHIMA 22. Register today at ahima.org. Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. From the studios of Rack Monitor, this is Monitor Monday for September 19, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The President's Inflation Reduction Act allows Medicare to negotiate certain drug prices for the first time. In Washington, reporting our lead story is the President and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Also today, we'll hear from Dennis Jones, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, Falana Houston, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, members of an Oregon Legislative Task Force are asking for comments to be submitted today for a universal health care plan. Rack Monitor National Correspondent Dennis Jones, who has reported on New York's failed efforts to create a single-payer house plan, reports on the initiative underway today in Oregon. Dennis. Thank you, Chuck. There was a lot of chatter up in Oregon last week. Was the chatter uh, about the University of Oregon quarterback Bo Nix leading his team? Are they really called the Ducks? To an impressive 41-20 to win over BYU on Saturday? Was it about Oregon State scoring 67 points against an outclassed Montana State team to go, uh, to go 3-0 on the season? No. The big news in the Beaver State, from the Pacific to the Snake River, from the bohemian neighborhoods of Portland to the even more bohemian neighborhoods of Bend, was that a special legislative health care task force released a draft report which recommends the creation of a universal, single-payer health insurance system in Oregon. For-profit commercial health insurance companies would be eliminated by the Oregon universal system, which would create a single encompassing health insurance plan with no out-of-pocket premiums, no deductibles, no coinsurance, no copays. The Oregon Universal System will be funded, hopefully, with federal revenues as well as $22 billion in new taxes. Oregon will create a new agency to define the coverage parameters and negotiate the reimbursement rates with healthcare providers. Overall savings are projected at over $2.5 billion. So who wouldn't love this? Well, for one, insurance companies and their employees who would be forced out of the market by this system. Also, Oregon healthcare providers. The task force said the level of benefits would be similar to those offered under the Oregon Health Plan. Well, the Oregon Health Plan is a Medicaid plan. Single-payer and universal coverage proposals in multiple states, including New York, have failed to get the support of providers when reimbursement rates are based on Medicare, let alone Medicaid rates. Comments will be accepted until the end of today in Oregon. Then the report will be submitted to the Oregon State Legislature later this month. So if you're up in the Beaver State to comment, like pointing out that paying hospitals Medicaid rates for such a large percentage of their patients will force significant labor and salary cuts for nurses, technicians, clinicians, other staff, make sure to stop in at the Bevel Craft Brewing for a fun day IPA. A couple of those and it might help you forget how tough it is to put together a workable universal coverage model. Back to you, Chuck. 
That was Rack Monitor National Correspondent Dennis Jones. Dennis is the Administrator of Patient Financial Services at Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. In other health care news, we check in this morning with Dr. Ron Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Last week, KeyPro released their monthly electronic newsletter called Case Connections. In these, there's a little blurb from the medical director describing some esoteric initiative by CMS or KeyPro. But if you stop reading there, you miss the good stuff. This month, they described KeyPro's online appeal tracking tool, now, granted, I'm a vendor, and I'm not in the hospital directly handling patient appeals, so this might be old news, but I didn't know you can go online and see exactly where the patient's appeal is in the process. I've heard of instances where the QIO is not so timely with their decision, so this is a great way to track that and get written proof if you choose to escalate their poor performance to CMS. The other part of the newsletter is always interesting to read. It's called the Immediate Advocacy Success Story. This is where they get to brag about their good work. This month, they described the patient who was discharged from the hospital and the prescriptions were not available at the pharmacy as requested, so the husband called Keypro for help. Keypro called the hospital and found out the prescriptions were called to a different pharmacy because the requested pharmacy was closed for the weekend. They called the patient's husband with this information. As Keypro describes it, the husband expressed appreciation and began to cry because he was so overwhelmed. Yes, they actually put that in the newsletter. But what struck me was a statement that the pharmacy staff was called and stated they were working on filling the 18 prescriptions. 18 prescriptions? Seriously? Can you imagine the drug interactions that are happening inside that patient's body? What is wrong with us that someone would think it'd be appropriate to prescribe that many medications to one person? I would hope that if any of you encounter a patient on 18 medications, you would talk to the doctor about a careful medication review and start de-prescribing some medications. It's also a good time to remind you that while we think of the QIO for patient discharge appeals, as we heard in this case, they're also available for patients to call about anything. If a patient doesn't like the food or their roommate, they can call the QIO. So if the QIO calls you, it may be simply a fact-finding call and not an official action. You may want to talk to your staff about how to handle such a call. How do you verify they really are who they say they are? How much information can you release to them? At what point do you need to involve compliance or risk? Lots of questions. That's it today, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Now is the time for the Monitor Monday Rack Report with healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Five years ago, CMS first compiled a list of services that the newly implemented at the time RAC program was to audit. It's been about five years with the RAC program. And what is it about the RAC program that stands out from the other auditor abbreviations? We're talking about Codavidi and performance recovery. You all know the players. The RAC program's mission is to obviously reduce Medicare improper payments through detection and collection of overpayments, but we all know the RAC review, that the RACs review claims on a post-payment basis, and they can also extrapolate, and whereas the MAC can implement actions that prevent future imp improper payments, like prepayment review. 
RACs are also held to a different sort of regulation than the other audit abbreviations. 42 CFR subpart F dictates the Medicaid RACs, whereas the Medicare program is run by uh, subchapter B. The auditors themselves are usually certified coders or LPNs. Last week, Lynn asked, one of our listeners, asked whether two separate auditors could audit the same record. And Dr. Hirsch's response was, yes, a cert can audit a chart that another reviewer is auditing if it's part of a random sample. And I agree with Dr. Hirsch. When a random sample is taken, then the auditors, by definition, have no idea what claims will be pulled, nor would the cert have any knowledge of other contemporaneous and overlapping audits. But what about multiple RAC audits? I do believe that the RACs should not overlap its own audits. And I personally don't like the idea of one claim being audited more than once. What if the two auditing companies make differing determinations? What if a CERT calls a claim compliant and the RAC denies the claim? The provider surely should not have to pay the claim back twice. I believe uh, Ed Rose presented on this issue a few weeks ago, and he called it double dipping. And this doesn't seem fair. So what I question with Dr. Hershey's response is that even if a cert is allowed to double dip via the rules or policies, maybe there could be some case law saying otherwise. So I did a quick search on Westlaw to see if there were any cases where the auditor was accused of double dipping, it was not a comprehensive search by any means, but I did not see any cases where auditors were accused of double dipping. I did see a few cases where hospitals were accused of double dipping by collecting dish payments to cover costs that had already been reimbursed, which seems like a topic for another day. Back to you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Felana Houston, and the president and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni, on our program. She's standing by in Washington to report our lead story. This is Monday, it's September the 19th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College of Physician Advisors is excited to announce the first Essentials and Fundamentals course on October 17, 2022 at the Lowe's Chicago O'Hare Hotel. This one-day event has been specifically designed to cover the basics of utilization management, care management, and clinical documentation integrity, making it an excellent opportunity for new physician advisors or those looking to brush up or expand their knowledge base. All speakers are content experts and thought leaders within each respective topic, with a cumulative experience of over 50 years in active physician advisor practice. The in-person venue will allow ample opportunities for specific questions to be answered, leading to greater understanding and ability to apply the principles discussed in your specific organizations. Participation will be limited to maintain a smaller, more personal educational setting. Don't miss this opportunity to get clinical documentation, utilization management, and care management education in one day in an in-person format for only $550. For registration and more details, please see the ACPA website, acpadvisors.org. 
Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could be risky this morning? Chuck, it's obstructionist employees. So one of my favorite things to do is assist clients with internal investigations. So if you've got one, keep that in the back of your mind. Right now, I'm in the middle of one such investigation where an employee is making everyone's life difficult. This individual is insisting they will only speak with me, corporate counsel, when they have their personal lawyer present. Now, there have been enough cop shows on TV that the Miranda warning is part of our collective consciousness. Most people know that you have the right to remain silent when government agents show up at your door. But many people don't realize that this right is limited to interactions with the government. And even then, it doesn't apply to communications with licensing boards. Now, before I went to law school, I didn't realize a key point about constitutional rights. They only apply to government actions. If your employer wishes to speak with you, the Constitution is generally inapplicable. The rights to freedom of speech and assembly and the protections from search and seizure are limitations that are placed upon the government, not upon private organizations. If you've ever wondered, why can Twitter ban someone? The answer is that Twitter isn't the government. The bottom line is that if an employee refuses to meet with internal counsel as part of an investigation, it's lawful for the company to fire that employee. While my client can fire the employee for not talking to me, there's an ethical rule that prohibits a lawyer from contacting an individual who's represented by counsel unless that counsel permits it. So here, the employee's lawyer has specifically told me not to talk to their client. This creates a really interesting situation. The employee's counsel is right that I'm not allowed to talk to the employee. But the employee's lawyer is basically giving the company good cause for firing their client, the employee. I've explained this to the lawyer several times, but he clearly doesn't get it, making nonsensical references to tortious interference to the relationship that he has with his client. But that's not a thing. So this lawyer is really messing up the investigation, and he may get his client fired. So what are the lessons of general applicability? The first is that employees have a duty to cooperate with an internal investigation. If an employer wants to talk to you, I recommend you agree. If you're running the investigation and an employee refuses to talk to you, you can and should warn them that their refusal can jeopardize their employment. Second, while criminal defendants are entitled to instruction that their refusal, or I guess to a jury instruction, that their refusal to speak shouldn't be used against them. The same is not true of an employee. When an employee won't participate in an investigation, you can, and I would say should, draw a negative inference. Here, the fact that the employee is so hesitant to talk with me strongly suggests the employee has done something improper. But despite that, I still can't contact the employee. And under the ethical rules, I can't direct someone else to do things I myself am prohibited from doing. If an employee lawyers up, company counsel can't be involved in an attempt to talk with them. So Chuck, I'm going to go hard rock this week, and I'm going to use Queensryche. Don't think I've ever done this one before. Until the company decides to fire this person for not cooperating with the investigation, the employee will continue in silent lucidity, but they do so at their own peril. I'm smiling next to you. 
silent lucidity. Back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is senior healthcare consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. What do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Thanks, Chuck, and good morning, all. CMS's Office of Minority Health, which, by the way, I love their mission, Working to Achieve Health Equity, has released health care materials that are targeted for our Hispanic patient population in honor and support for National Hispanic Heritage Month this September. The recognition is key since Hispanics have lower rates of health insurance coverage compared to their non-Hispanic counterparts and are disproportionately affected by chronic health conditions such as diabetes, cancer, and and health disease. To combat this disparity, the question is posed, are we providing our outreach and education in a culturally supportive means? I think this is a good reminder to assess and consider English as a second language is often a barrier to the care provided in the U.S. Remembering my days on the front line as a medical social worker, there were numerous cases where I was working with Spanish-speaking patients and families. I would try to complete my assessments and coordination of care services by relying on the hospital translator services, which at that time was a blue phone that was never conveniently located in the hospital. Eventually, I moved to my cell phone, putting translator services on speaker in the patient room to get us through the various care coordination and social work discussions. I remember I would often watch providers, physicians roll into the room and use family members as the official translator for the patient's medical care and consent for procedures. Thankfully, hospital policies have progressed, so hopefully this is no longer common practice. However, how often in the clinical setting are we asking the question to our bilingual patients, would you prefer a translator or interpreter in your native or primary language? Here are a couple examples of why this is important. I often listen to our partner podcast, Talk 10 Tuesday, and each Tuesday I hear Laureen Johnson or Dr. Erica Reamer list diagnoses and ICD-10 codes that I can't even pronounce. Despite my advanced degree, I have a health literacy deficit in understanding all the nuances of the coding world. Now, let's take another example. What if I were in another country where I did not speak the native language and needed medical care? How would I feel if that doctor speaking to me as I felt sick and in pain did not speak my language? I would be lost, I would be frustrated, and I would be completely helpless. This month, CMS's Office of Minority Health is asking us to take the time to provide culturally relevant and linguistically appropriate materials to our patients. It is as simple as ensuring our education and our consent forms are available in Spanish. They have even included various links for us all to review and utilize, which will be available in my article this week. Now today's question. How many of you, like me, have failed to consistently provide translation services or culturally relevant materials when providing services to our English as a second language patient? Yes, no, does not apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. 
Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. And up next, the Monitor Money Legislative Update with Falona Houston. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright is Falana Houston. Good morning, Falana. Thanks, Chuck. Good morning. Last week, CMS issued a request for information, or RFI, to ask for suggestions on the No Surprises Act the NSA Advanced Explanation of Benefits, AEOB, and the Good Faith Estimate Requirement. The NSA requires that when a patient schedules an item or service or at the patient's request, providers must send the plan, issuer, or carrier a good faith estimate of the expected charges, which includes any items or services reasonably expected to be provided, and must also include anything related to an outside provider or facility. Alternatively, for uninsured or self-pay patients, providers must produce the good faith estimate directly to the patient. Regarding the AELB, the planner carrier is required to provide it to the patient no later than one business day after it receives the good faith estimate from the provider. For services scheduled at least 10 business days in advance, the plan must provide the AELB to the patient within three days of receiving the good faith estimate. The RFI seeks recommendations on operationalizing how providers get the good faith estimate to the carriers and the economic impact of implementing these requirements. The RFI also asks if there are any privacy concerns considering that data would include the patient's future service and the expected billing and diagnostic codes. Another interesting question is if special considerations should be taken into account for individuals who are enrolled in coverage along with other members of their household. Next, CMS also notes that up to 46% of prior authorizations are still submitted via fax, and 60% require a telephone call. Rulemakers are interested to learn if any plans, issuers, and carriers that are small, rural, or have any other characteristics would cause deploying standards-based technology to pose a significant barrier to their ability to service their customers. In the schedule of regulations that the administration plans on publishing, called the Unified Agenda, the government says it will come out with a proposed rule on the AEOB January 1st, 2023. Given that the RFI is just coming out now, we highly doubt that there will be a proposed rule on the AEOB in January. It is much more likely to be published later in 2023, if at all. This is far too new and complicated a requirement for a proposed rule to come out so soon after the RFI. After a proposed rule, one can expect that a final rule could be published after about seven months at the very earliest, keeping in mind the publication of the NSA Part 1 final rule took a record-breaking seven months. The RFI also notes that HL7, a standards development organization, is developing a predetermination standard that may relate to the AEOB. This indicates that industry groups want to create standards for the multiple data transfers implicit in the AEOB. Given that multiple organizations will likely be weighing in on the standards and business processes for the good faith estimate in the AEOB, we expect this sub-regulatory process to take a number of years to complete and some time for the government to adopt. The conclusion to be drawn is that we're still a long way from something tangible coming out of CMS on implementing the AEOB portion of the NSA. Back to you, Chuck. 
Thank you very much, Falana. That was Falana Houston. Falana is Assistant General Counsel for Zealous. And coming up, who's the new prescription drug price negotiator? Well, you're going to find out when Maureen Testoni reports our lead story this morning from Washington. But now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. Thank you all. So I asked, how many of you, like me, have failed to consistently provide translation services or culturally relevant materials? when providing services to our English as a second language patient. So we have, yes, was about 20 to 23% that we've all been there, done that. Uh, No, we have uh, about 26% um, that are consistently providing uh, culturally relevant materials, which is great to hear. And about 50%, half our listeners say it doesn't apply. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are you ready to create a better world where health is transformed by data and information advances? Then you belong at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference, October 9th through the 12th in Columbus, Ohio. Join over 3,000 innovative healthcare professionals for thought-provoking workshops and networking connections that will last a lifetime. Imagine a better world where health information is transformed by data, and you are at the center, recognized for improving lives because you made sure that the data in any healthcare record was trusted. Find out how to make this happen at AHIMA 22, where you will be convinced that data is the new medicine and the work you do is vital. Register today at the American Health Information Management Association website. That's ahima.org. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, the President's recent initiative, the Inflation Reduction Act, now allows Medicare to negotiate prices that will pay for certain drugs, that for the first time. Here now to report our lead story is the President and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for inviting me to the show. It's really a pleasure to be back. It was a very busy summer for those of us who work in the prescription drug pricing world. In August, Congress approved and President Biden signed into law brand new authority to give government officials new tools to bring down the cost of prescription drugs for Medicare. The legislation is officially titled the Inflation Reduction Act and included a variety of new policy provisions to address key issues in our economy, such as drug prices, energy, and climate. After literally decades of debate, this law would finally allow Medicare to negotiate the prices for certain prescription drugs. The aim is to lower drug prices for seniors and taxpayers by establishing a maximum fair price for selected drugs covered under Medicare Parts B and D and by imposing penalties on drug companies that raise their prices faster than inflation. When Medicare drug price negotiations starts in 2026 with Part D drugs that have been on the market for at least nine years and are among the top 10 on which Medicare spends the most money. Part D drugs include most prescription drugs that patients generally take at home. In 2027, an additional 15 Part D drugs will be added, and in 2028, 15 more drugs will be added, but those drugs may include Part B drugs as well. Part B drugs are medications patients typically take in the outpatient section of a hospital or in an infusion center or in a doctor's office, including injectable and physician-administered drugs. In 2029, another 20 drugs will be subject to negotiation, bringing the total number up to 60, and that list will continue to increase by 20 drugs each year after that. 
The legislation is expected to reduce prices for Medicare patients by 25% to 60% with higher reductions applying to drugs that have been on the market longer. Inflation penalties on drug manufacturers start earlier than price negotiation. Next year, drug makers that increase their prices of existing drugs faster than inflation must provide rebates to Medicare for the above inflation amount of those increases. That's another way in which the law's authors hope to keep drug prices in check. Chuck, implementing Medicare price negotiations and additional checks on the drug price increases have been policy goals for decades, but it will take years before we can understand the precise effects this new law will have on what healthcare providers and patients pay for drugs. The full impact will depend in part on how the government implements the law as well as how drug companies and drug purchasers respond to the new incentives. These are all enormously complex factors that make the future of drug pricing difficult to predict. As you know, I represent more than 1,400 hospitals and health centers, uh, health clinics that participate in the 340B drug pricing program. This federal program provides crucial savings for safety net hospitals, health centers, and clinics through discounts they receive from drug manufacturers. Due to the reduction in Medicare reimbursement for the negotiated drugs, 340B hospitals are likely to see lower Medicare uh, 340B savings on those drugs. In addition, any law that affects the prices of drugs will also influence the formula that sets the 340B price, potentially impacting savings that 340B discounts generate for providers. But this is very difficult to forecast with any certainty. For any given hospital, the ultimate effect of this new legislation will depend on factors that include the drugs Medicare chooses for negotiation, changes in the types of drugs for the hospitals that patients need, the launch prices that companies set for new drugs, and the size of drug prices over time, and the availability of generic alternatives, just to name a few. 340B Health has successfully advocated for several provisions to mitigate potential reductions, uh, including that if the Medicare negotiations lower the price of a drug but below the 340 discounted price, the 340B hospital will still be able to purchase the drug at that lowest price. Also, the new lower prices will not be part of the formula for calculating 340B discounted prices. If they had, this likely would have increased those prices and provided a windfall for manufacturers. Chuck, these are exciting times for both of us who are following drug pricing issues closely. The government is now going to turn to the task of drafting federal regulations, and 340B Health will be among the many organizations that will be actively engaged in education advocacy efforts on behalf of our providers and the patients in need whom they serve. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Maureen. That was the president and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Falana Houston, who was sitting in this morning for Matthew Albright, and the president and CEO for 340B Health, Maureen Testoni. And Dennis Jones, who reported our news-breaking story this morning. And remember, folks, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts anytime on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do rate us, give us a review. And one more thing before we go, be sure to join me tomorrow for another live edition of Talk to Tuesday at 10 Eastern. That's when we continue our series on the 2023 E&M Code Changes with Colleen Deacon. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.